Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you are listening to an episode in the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast brought to you by the NBN and our friends at Princeton University Press. Today, I'm very happy to say we are talking to Steve Nadler, who has co-authored with Lawrence Shapiro, When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People, How Philosophy Can Save Us from Ourselves. It's just out from Princeton University Press. Steve, welcome to the show. Before we begin the interview, I would like to say this to the billionaires that listen to the New Books Network, and I'm sure that Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos are tuning in. You should really buy a hundred, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of copies of this book and distribute it to every uh, high school graduate in their senior year, because it, it, is, it is a wonderful summation of how to think clearly. And I think everybody needs this book, whether they go on to college or not. I think they would profit from it. So Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos get on it. I'm sure the people at Princeton will be uh, happy and will sell enough books that Steve can then retire. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. I do too. Yeah, I, do. I really was impressed with the book. It's incredibly clear, and it, it has, you know, it has, it, it really does kind of explain how to think clearly. Um, and to weigh evidence and things like this. So it's a, it's a really terrific primer. I, I highly recommend it. So Steve, maybe you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I was born in New York City and grew up in Roslyn, Long Island. And I went to college out at Washington University in St. Louis and then came back to New York for graduate school at Columbia, where I got a PhD in philosophy um, many years ago. And I've been out here in Madison, Wisconsin for about 34 years now teaching philosophy in the Department of Philosophy and also with some affiliations with the Center for Jewish Studies. Um, And now I'm the director of the Institute for Research in the Humanities here. And my work over the years has been devoted mostly to philosophy in the 17th century with uh, books and articles on Descartes, Spinoza and Leibniz and some amateurish forays into the intersection of philosophy and history and religious studies and art history in the 17th century. Uh, A man after my own heart. I was trained as an early modernist. So whenever I see Descartes, I smile. That's very good. Everything in the 17th century is connected with everything else. And so it's it's a great period if if you have broad interests. And even if you're working in philosophy, you can't ignore what's happening in the domains of politics and religion and science. Yeah, it all started in the early modern period. More people should study the early modern period. Um, So uh, maybe a good second question would be, why did you write this book? I mean, there are a lot of topics out there. There are a lot of topics. And and neither Larry, my co-author, and I ever envisioned we'd be writing a book like this. But over the last four or five years, for reasons your listeners could probably assume, um, we grew increasingly worried, uh, anxious, and scared uh, about what was happening in this country, what was happening around the world, um, the fate of democracy, and just some really clear a really clear epidemic of irrationality that seems to be spreading. Um, you know, we have, we're in the midst of this still, the COVID-19 pandemic, but um, perhaps as we say in the book, even more dangerous is the, the epidemic of bad thinking or rationality, which only exacerbates um, the spread of the viral pandemic when people refuse to get vaccinated, when they discount medical advice, um, and so it's, it's really frightening. We'll, you know, hopefully soon we'll be over the viral pandemic, but it's going to take a lot more effort for us to get past the epidemic of bad thinking. 
That was an excellent response because I know people used to ask me, why are you writing books about 17th century Russia? I never really had a good answer. <laughs> well, I, I still think the 17th century is, is still with us in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> so the book uh, is about bad thinking. So let me ask this. What is bad thinking? What are its hallmarks or the criteria that can help us identify it? And can you give some examples? So bad thinking, um, we we distinguish it from uh, ignorance, uh, stupidity, although I think it has a lot in common with stupidity, uh, being dumb, and so on. Uh, bad thinking is essentially irrationality. It's a, a failure. Uh, in fact, in many cases, a willful failure or stubbornness uh, to a failure to tailor your beliefs to evidence. Uh, bad thinking occurs when we form beliefs in the absence of any compelling evidence that points to their truth. Um, it's even more dangerously present when we refuse to give up beliefs that are clearly uh, refuted by the evidence right in front of us or evidence that we should at least have before us. So Holocaust deniers, people who believe that the COVID-19 pandemic is caused by 5G networks, people who think that the Democratic Party is operating out of a pizza joint in Brooklyn that's engaged in child sex trafficking and cannibalism, uh, people who continue to believe uh, whatever Donald Trump says about anything, but especially what Donald Trump had to say and has to say about the 2020 election. Uh, these are all instances where people simply refuse to be rational um, and they form these beliefs uh, in right in the face of contrary evidence. Um, Plenty of evidence about the medical benefits of wearing masks and getting vaccinated. People still refuse to get vaccinated. Uh, plenty of evidence that, they, that there was very little, almost negligible amount of voter fraud in the election. The Biden won the election fair and square. Um, and then there are just some beliefs like the, the Democratic Pizzagate, uh, which are just so incredible in the face of it that one wonders why anybody would come to believe it in the first place. So these are all classic instances. And it's not as if all of a sudden we're having a pandemic of bad thinking. There's always been bad thinking. There was bad thinking back in our favorite century, the 17th century, when people were enslaving others. Um, there was bad thinking in ancient Greece. The problem now, though, is that bad thinking can spread much more quickly with the advent of social media. Um, people seem to take anything they read on Facebook or see on Twitter or get over some social media transom, uh, they just take it at face value and they seem incapable of discriminating between good and bad sources of information. So that's another element of bad thinking, not just forming bad beliefs, but being unable to discriminate about where you should get your beliefs from. Another great answer. Um, as you write, uh, bad thinking touches on two philosophical sub-disciplines. I know a little bit about them, but the listeners might not. I bet they do though. Uh, one is epistemology, and the other is ethics. And how are those, uh, what are those, and how does bad thinking relate to epistemology and ethics? I'll sum up epistemology uh, with a simple phrase, and then I'll expand on this. Epistemology is what should we believe, and ethics is about what we should do. Um, when I say epistemology is about what we should believe, what I mean is it's all about the relationship between belief, justification, and knowledge. What's the difference between having merely a belief about something versus knowing that thing? Um, how much justification do you need in order to claim that a belief you have um, counts as knowledge? Where does truth and falsehood come in? 
uh, epistemology tells us that you can believe something that's false, but you can't know something that's false. You can know that something is false, but if the thing is false, you can't know it. Um, I can't. I can believe that Paris is the capital of Canada, but I can't know it. And so epistemology is all about what is the proper relationship between our beliefs and evidence, and when are we justified in claiming to know something. Ethics is about, um, for the most part, action, although it's also about the kind of person one becomes. Um, you know, in, in the ancient world, ethics and moral philosophy is primarily about how to be a good person, what is a good life, what is a good character, and how do the virtues play a role in that. Um, since the 18th century uh, with Kant and in the 19th century with utilitarianism, two of our main forms of moral philosophy today still, uh, ethics has become not just about who we are, but what we do. What is a right action? What is a wrong action? What makes a right action right and a wrong action wrong? How ought we to decide what we should do? <laughs> so if I understand your argument correctly, and it's very sensible, bad thinking, that's the epistemological part, leads to bad decisions. That's the ethical part. That is decisions in the real world. But one of the fascinating things you point out in the book is that there are situations in which a person can make a bad decision, but be blameless. Can you talk a little bit about such situations? Sure. Um, in many cases, when we make a bad decision, um, we do so not because we are in full command of the relevant information and therefore just draw the wrong conclusions or because we are willfully misled. Uh, well, first of all, sometimes we do bad things because we're forced to, we're under constraint. Yeah. Um, and that certainly exculpates um, the person. You're, you're not going to be held morally blameworthy for something you could not possibly have avoided. Uh, someone puts a gun to your head or threatens you or something like that. Uh, you're really morally culpable in moral situations for bad action when you should have known better and could have known better. And that can happen in two ways. First of all, it may be that um, you should have known, you should have had the information that would have led you to make the right decision, uh, but you didn't, and you didn't seek it out. Now, there are many instances where you couldn't possibly have known more. Uh, and in those cases, too, we would excuse the person. If they couldn't possibly have known better, um, maybe the information was not something that any reasonable person could have attained, or maybe it was information that was so well hidden or so hard to discover that despite the person's efforts, they didn't come upon it. So in those cases, we're, we're willing to excuse the person. But if the information is right there in front of him and they ignore it, then you're morally blameworthy for the consequences. Or if maybe that information is not right in front of you, but with a little digging, a little curiosity, a little inquisitiveness, you could have and would have found that information information that would have led you to the right beliefs and therefore the right actions, then we would also hold you morally blameworthy. Mm -hmm. So it's true that not every time you do the, a wrong, the wrong thing or act in a bad way, you're morally blameworthy. But if you could have acted otherwise and should have acted otherwise and could have known better, then we would say the person is going to be held morally responsible for what they did. Yeah, I have written here in my notes the way I summarized uh, your argument about culpability was they should have known better and they should have acted differently. And of course, that's the proviso. They could have acted differently and they could have known. Because right. there are lots of situations in which you couldn't. Uh, this is a bit of an aside, but what about trust? What if you trust an authority that misleads you 
and then you act upon the basis of that. That's kind of a tricky one. Not really. I mean, it depends what your trust is based on. If your trust is a kind of blind faith because you like the way the person combs their hair or you like the way they dress. Um, you know, why do we have certain celebrities, uh, we take their trust when they endorse certain products, with products for which they have absolutely no expertise whatsoever. So if the trust comes about in an irrational way, in the absence of any evidence that you should trust this person, then that's bad thinking. Then you're, then you, you're blameworthy for that. On the other hand, if you did your due diligence and you have very good reasons why you should trust this person. So trust can be a matter of faith or it could be a matter of rational, um, rational confidence in the person's reliability. Yeah, so to give an example, I, I generally trust American doctors, and I have some experience with doctors in other countries. <laughs> and I, I can tell you I lived in Russia for a while, and I'm not sure I trust them as much. But my rational ground for that is I know a little bit about the way doctors are trained in the United States. Right. And, and I have friends who are doctors, and uh, it's pretty serious business. Like, we don't produce bad doctors. It's just not a thing we do. So, yeah, trust is a really good example yeah. for this, uh, for the distinction between rationality and irrationality. If, if I believe that somebody is trustworthy um, as a matter of faith, it may be a perfectly rational thing for me to believe. There may be good evidence why I should trust this person. But if that evidence didn't play any role in my coming to trust them, then my trust in them is, mm, is non-rational. It's a matter of faith. On the other hand, it could be a, a very irrational thing for me to trust this person. Maybe there's lots of evidence that this trust this person is not trustworthy at all, in which case um, I trust them on a matter of faith and it's an irrational thing for me to do because it's counter to the evidence that I should have had. Or there may be no evidence one way or the other about whether this person is trustworthy, in which case it's just purely a, an act of faith. Um, but we should be very careful about trusting people in the absence of any evidence. Mm -hmm. Yes. So let's move on to a concept that is absolutely central to the book. And I love your use of this word. I really do. In a philosophical context, stubbornness. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of reminds There's me of my pulpit. sister. <laughs> my sister was really stubborn. Sister, sister was very stubborn. So stubbornness, what is it? And how do we know it when we see it? In the book, we distinguish between two species of stubbornness, uh, epistemic stubbornness and normative or moral stubbornness. Epistemic stubbornness is exactly what we've been describing as bad thinking, where despite the evidence, you refuse to change your beliefs. It's clinging on to a belief well past the point at which you should have abandoned it, uh, whether the belief is about whether the Holocaust happened or about whether so-and-so won or lost an election or whether it's a good idea to get vaccinated. Uh, the longer you hold on to a belief as the evidence that the belief is false mounts, you are being stubborn, epistemically stubborn. A stubbornness is simply persisting in some belief or behavior beyond all reasonable bounds. Normative or moral stubbornness um, means carrying out actions, persisting in actions beyond all reasonable limits. And we give a couple examples of this in the book about people who insist on applying a rule despite the fact that the application of the rule in the instance at hand uh, is really contrary to everyone's best interest and even leads to a result that is inconsistent with the desire for the rule mm -hmm. in the first place. So we give the example of a security guard in a Madison, Wisconsin high school who was fired because he was disciplining a student uh, who was uh, misbehaving. And the student started calling the uh, guard, and both of these individuals were black, started calling the guard with the N-word. 
And the guard said, well, don't call me by the N-word, using the word. Uh, and the guard was fired because the school had a very well-intentioned policy, uh, no toleration for any use of that word. Um, but of course, the, the security guard was not using the word. The guard was mentioning the word in a very, uh, very difficult context. And so here, the application of a rule seems not just to be misguided, but contrary to the purposes of instituting the rule in the first place. And so that's a kind of normative stubbornness. What ought we to do or what ought we not to do? And that too, like our beliefs, should be grounded in good reasons. Mm -hmm. So this is a very sticky question. I I don't have a good answer. I don't know if um, I've ever heard a good answer to this question. to put it positively, how much positive evidence for holding a belief is necessary? And to put it in the negative sense, how much disconfirmatory? Did I just make that word up? That's uh, a good word. Let's yeah, use it. Uh, yeah. Disconfirmatory, that is uh, evidence that is contra whatever it is your beliefs. Do you need in order to take that leap of faith? <laughs> it's not a leap of faith. Yeah, it's not, to a take, leap of reason. not a leap of reason is what it is. Right. Yeah. How much is enough? How do you know? Philosophers differ in that. Context uh, is very important. I don't think there's a single answer in all contexts. You might have to make a, a decision rather quickly, or you might have plenty of time to weigh the evidence one way or the other. You know, Descartes, uh, in his philosophical, philosophical project, said, let's, let's, not, let's not concern ourselves with the probabilities. Let's go for absolute certainty. And he believed it was attainable, at least in the sciences. Yeah. Um, but for all practical matters, uh, even Descartes was willing to make do with just a high degree of probability. How much probability do you need? Well, I think that all depends on the situation. Um, how quickly do you have to react? Uh, in terms of disconfirmation, philosophers of science too vary about how much does it take to falsify a theory. Um, usually a single, you know, in, in true experimental science, a single instance um, can disconfirm a theory. But in the practical matters of everyday life, um, let's say we're talking about whether somebody is trustworthy, um, it may be a single betrayal would be enough to be uh, enough reason to no longer believe this person to be trustworthy. And if there's a series of betrayals, then certainly you should give up the belief. Um, What about when you're coming to form the belief in the first place? Um, If the person demonstrated trustworthy behavior in one instance, is that sufficient to say, okay, then in all future instances, I'm going to believe this person? That, that would be pretty weak evidence. So you have to build up some sort of inductive uh, material here to draw the right and justify conclusion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's a non-answer to your question. It, well, this is a, you know, this is a constant problem. And I studied statistics for a while where they kind of try to grapple with these things and yeah. levels of significance and all this stuff. But at some point you just have to make the leap of reason. Let's trademark that leap you of do. reason. <laughs> and, you know, people working in, in Bayesian probability theory um, spend a lot of yeah. time wondering, you know, because you have to take background information into account. You have to take the plausibility of the proposition or the thing you're being asked to believe in the first place. So all of these factors come into play. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And But eventually you have to act. The trigger has to be pulled. It does, so to say, yeah. that's a, probably a yeah. bad metaphor for this case, but eventually you have to act. And so you've, you basically have to make that leap of reason. I like that you just, very much. You just don't act precipitously. Yeah, um, right, right. Well, patience is the mother of virtues. That's what my mom used to say. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good motherly thing yeah, to say. Yeah, it was, it was. Patience is the mother. I tell it to my kids. Um, so you write, the cure for bad thinking is naturally learning how to think well. 
And this is sort of a two-part question. First, I'd like you to talk a little bit about what it means to think well and how we learn to do it. And then uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the historical tradition of thinking well as we understand it. And this will lead us back to the 16th and 17th century right. and the scientific method and stuff like that. So you might start historically and then get to the meat of the question, which was, what is it to think well? Up to you. Uh, so it, it goes back well before the 16th and 17th century. <laughs> it goes back to Socrates. Yeah. Uh, because Socrates was concerned with questioning people to see whether they really knew what they said they knew. That is, whether they had the uh, sufficient justification for their beliefs. So one of the first things I have my students read in a Philosophy 101 class is Plato's dialogue, Euthyphro. Euthyphro is convinced... Oh, yeah, I had my students yeah. read this too. Yeah, I know just research. It's a great yeah. dialogue yeah. for introducing them to some basic issues in philosophy. Uh, and the problem with Euthyphro is that he's prosecuting his father for murder because he believes it's a pious thing to do. And so the dialogue goes through Socrates' questioning of Euthyphro to see whether Euthyphro really knows what piety is and thus whether he really is justified in believing that what he's doing is a pious thing. Socrates doesn't care whether it is or is not the pious thing to prosecute your father for murder. What he cares about is whether Euthyphro is acting with full knowledge of what he's doing. Uh, so I think that that's where it all begins, the, yeah. the quest for good thinking. Um, what good thinking amounts to is essentially the opposite of what we've been calling bad thinking. Uh, good thinking means you tailor your beliefs to the evidence. Um, you decide when the evidence is good enough, as I just said, in terms of the circumstances, in terms of the initial plausibility or probability of the belief, the background conditions, what else would have to be true if this were true, or what would have to be false if this were true. You take all of these things into consideration and you weigh them up and decide whether you should believe what you're being asked to believe. Mm -hmm. uh, and as, as you said, in some cases, you just have to act, but when deciding whether to join a January 6th riot, an assault on the Capitol building of the United States, um, you better be very careful in, in making claims about stolen elections and about uh, uh, child sex ring cabals operating in the other political party. Uh, the probabilities of the things you're being asked to believe are so low that um, you really are epistemically irresponsible if you continue to believe these things and then morally responsible if you act on them. I think everybody who assaulted the Capitol on that day under the belief that they were doing something right um, are guilty of serious uh, epistemic and moral failures. Mm -hmm. uh, when I mentioned the early modern period, the 16th and 17th century, what I was alluding to was the kind of formation of the scientific method. And I, I, I tell people that we're all scientists, whether we think we are or not. And it's because we live in this tradition. We're taught it. I think there are other traditions. In fact, I know there are other traditions which you are not taught it. Right. And so it's a very culturally specific thing. I don't know if it's very culturally specific anymore, but it has discrete origins, and it has spread throughout at least Western society, and I would argue world society. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, the scientific method really um, codifies good thinking in the sense yeah. that uh, theories are subjected to testing. Um, you have a you so just uh, broadly speaking, you have some phenomenon of nature that you'd like to understand. Uh, so you first gather all the data you can about the phenomenon, and then you frame a hypothesis that, uh, or maybe you frame several hypotheses that explain the phenomenon, uh, and then you test them. Um, and some of the hypotheses through testing will pan out and some will not. So you frame crucial experiments, which will falsify some of the hypotheses. 
Uh, Descartes thought that in this way he could discover uh, uh, an absolutely true confirmation of a hypothesis. Now uh, philosophers of science are a little more careful and they say, well, no, you haven't, uh, you, you really don't have the right to say you've confirmed the truth. What you have is really a falsification of hypotheses that don't work. And so the, the winner by process of elimination is the one that's not yet been falsified. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think, though, that this, this kind of bad thinking um, while it was codified by philosophers in the 17th century, people like Francis Bacon, uh, yeah. Descartes, and Galileo, and Huygens, and Leibniz, and Newton, and others, um, it's really almost innate in us, or at least the rules of logic. Um, you find, you know, five-year-olds know how to use the disjunctive syllogism. The cookies are either in this jar or that jar. Well, I look, they're not in this jar, therefore they must be in that jar. Yeah. That's the disjunctive syllogism. And I think there's no reason why we shouldn't start to enlighten children as to these basic rules of logic and start lessons in good thinking early on. Let them become aware, consciously aware of what they're doing as they go through these everyday decisions. Um, do I go outside and play or do I stay inside and, and uh, make Lego sculptures? Um, these are all things that children weigh up the pros and cons and come to some as long as the parents don't interfere, um, come to some kind of decision. It may not be a good decision, but maybe we need to present them with better evidence so they come to the right decision. I, I think you're totally right that these are innate. I'll give the example. <laughs> I'll never forget when my five-year-old son, Isaiah, uh, I, I said to him, uh, probably in a moment of peak, you're lying. And he said, well, what if I'm lying about lying? <laughs> <laughs> the paradox, the liar's yeah, paradox. Like wow, how did you come up with that? <laughs> well, my, my daughter once, um, I guess she was about six years old. Um, she had she came up with a great modus ponens. Um, she said, um, I don't like Mikey, this guy in her class. I yeah. said, why don't you like Mikey? She said, well, I don't like people who wear fireman hats. Mikey wears a fireman's hat, so I don't like Mikey. Yeah, there you go. All right, that's good. Because, I mean, as you point out in the book, there are sort of two components here to good thinking. One is just the rules of logic, which I don't even know if they're taught anymore. I, I, I learned them in college. Are you guys teaching them in the philosophy? Is there a logic class? I mean, Oh, it's required. Yeah, I think good. most, yeah. most uh, philosophy yeah. departments and probably all philosophy departments have a course either uh, in informal logic or formal logic, symbolic yeah. logic. And uh, most philosophy majors in most departments are required to take the course in symbolic or formal logic. Good for you. But, yeah. but you're right. But it's not taught, really, it's not taught in high schools. No reason why it couldn't I be. I didn't learn it in high school. No way I no, learned nobody it in high does. school. Yeah, I didn't learn it in high school. But there um, are philosophy courses in high schools now. I think that's becoming a more common thing. I know that um, the Madison high schools have uh, teach philosophy. And more and more of my undergraduate students here at the University of Wisconsin, when they show up in that first semester in Philosophy 101, um, a surprising number have had philosophy in high school. So it's being done. But why not go to middle school, even elementary school? I, I once had a daft idea about what should be taught prior to college. And I, <laughs> I determined math and philosophy. That's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing else. <laughs> Including ethics. Yeah, right. Math and philosophy. That's really it. Yeah. <laughs> Both are really interesting. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, I, I won't call them objections, challenges to, to what you're saying. And one can, I'm not speaking for myself. I'm thinking, putting my critic's hat on and thinking, well, you know, what, what, what don't I quite agree with about this? So in terms of your definition of stubbornness being 
a, a failure to conform your beliefs to evidence. Does what you're saying mean that all religious people who hold metaphysical beliefs are just stubborn? Uh, no, well, it depends. They hold belief. So let's talk about the belief in the existence of God. Um, if you believe that that belief is a matter of knowledge, um, then I think you're probably misguided. That is, if you believe that it's a rationally justified belief, um, then there's a bit of stubbornness there. But let's say a person has come to believe in the existence of God. They recognize that it's not a matter of knowledge, but the belief brings them comfort. And it gets them through the day, it gets them through their life, especially in, in difficult times. Uh, maybe it even motivates them to great moral projects. Um, then no, I, I wouldn't say that they're, I mean, maybe they're stubborn, but it's not, it's not a bad thing. Um, think of the, the great crusaders for peace and justice um, in, you know, in just in American history who were deeply religious people, not because they were committed to the belief in God as some kind of rational, epistemically justified belief on the par of scientific knowledge, but because they, they, it motivated them. That's perfectly fine. Uh, Dorothy Day, the Berrigan brothers. Um, I was listening to an interview this morning with Jane Goodall, and she described a kind of stubbornness. She, was, she had been out in the field in Africa observing the chimpanzees, and then she had to go back to Cambridge to earn her degree in um, ethology. Um, and all the evidence was that uh, she, she would not succeed in getting this degree because of the obstinance of the faculty. Um, they, were, they didn't believe that a woman um, should be going out into the field to make these observations to do the, the naturalist job. And they also thought her theories about chimpanzee behavior and the comparison with human behavior were, were outrageous. So she had in front of her good reasons for thinking that she was not going to succeed in getting this degree. And she persisted. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, in this case, we, we're all much luckier, better for uh, much better off that, than she did. Um, the crusaders, moral crusaders, political crusaders, uh, the people who sat in at the lunch counters, the bus boycotters, um, the civil rights, um, the civil rights um, fighters. Uh, this is a good kind of stubbornness. Um, you know, they, they at the time maybe should have had no hope whatsoever that they would succeed. And yet, um, you know, to the famous recent line, they persisted. Mm -hmm. uh, I, and good for them and good for us. I, 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 like what, I like the distinction that you made because every Lutheran, I was raised a Lutheran, knows this distinction. Because I always think of Luther as like the arch empiricist. Because he said, you will not find any evidence for God in the world. Right. But <laughs> you will not, no matter how hard you look. You just have to believe. <laughs> Pascal said the same thing. You can't know that God exists, but you should believe it. You should yeah. believe it. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. That's um, what he said. Yeah. So, you, you know, unlike some of the so-called new atheists, I'm not opposed to religious beliefs. Um, I, I'm an atheist myself. I don't have a, a worshipful bone in my body. But uh, I'm grateful that there are people out there doing good works because of their religious beliefs. I'm not well, convinced that religious belief that organized religions are a bad thing. Yeah, well, this you've you've um, to, to go on to the next challenges. You've anticipated one, and that I call it the positive case. That is, holding or acting upon beliefs that are supported by very little evidence in quotes can actually be good for you and your community. Yeah, it seems to me to be empirically an unchallengeable proposition. <laughs> like the evidence yeah. is overwhelming that this is true. Absolutely. 
Think of how little moral, social, and political progress we would have made over the centuries if we, if people weren't um, encouraged, in fact, to persist in beliefs in the face of overwhelming evidence. Um, oh, I agree. I agree. You know, the evi- you know, yeah. We wouldn't have Galileo um, constructing a telescope to yeah. refute the Ptolemaic uh, a geocentric system of the cosmos. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree completely, you know, from a broader sociological or socio-historical perspective. I mean, the, the major religions are huge pacifying devices, kind of civilized us, enable us to live in cities and among groups of people. And right. yeah, there's some wacky things that you have to assent to, but still. Well, they've also, been a source, they've also been a source of great prejudice and they violence have, as yeah. well. They have, and you got to um, kind of balance sheet and, I guess I would say that the balance sheet is is generally uh, positive. Well, let, let's take what I call the negative sort of challenger objection. And an example would be Marxism or social Darwinism and other quote unquote scientific doctrines that uh, today we kind of see them as pseudosciences, but at the time they were not seen as pseudosciences. Um, and a lot of people believe that they were true uh, and they presented a lot of evidence in quotes that they were true. Yet there were people that said, no, they weren't true, even though the consensus was that they somehow were. So here we have a case of stubbornness being very useful too. I mean, those who persisted yes, in denying the in theory. Be, yeah, deny, because the scientific yeah. consensus was, well, yeah, this is, yeah, Marxism true, social Darwinism true. You can't, you can't be a good heretic if you're not stubborn. And we, <laughs> and we need heretics, um, yeah. whether, you know, whether political heretics, uh, one of my great heroes, Spinoza, uh, was declared a heretic because he was willing to say things that um, got, not only got him into trouble, but were deemed um, you know, dangerous. Uh, but you know, in the case of things like Marxist, I don't, I don't think it, we can say that the Marxist theory of history is true or false. Um, I think it's just one way of making sense of things. I think theories of history are not, don't mm-hmm. have, I don't think they have truth values. I think their perspectives on human behavior, on social facts, and on the progress of communities and institutions through time, which allow us to understand them from one particular perspective. Well, just to push back a little bit on that, Marx made very concrete predictions that were wrong. I mean, they, they were just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and so that would refute those, yeah. uh, those, those particular aspects of the theory. Yeah. But to say in general that, we sh- that, the, uh, that history is not moved by material and, and oh, economic yeah, Anybody factors. would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. sure. That, yeah, that, that's kind of common sense. But, and it might not be a good example. Social, social Darwinism might be a better example. I don't know. Um, but we, I, I remember, and I, gosh, I cannot remember his name, but I interviewed uh, a philosopher at Princeton, actually, who writes about pseudosciences. What is his name? You, I bet you know his name. Um, in any event, he said, it's almost doubtless the case that we are practicing some pseudosciences today. <laughs> we don't know it. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's just, it only comes out in the wash. <laughs> yeah. We don't know we are, but we are. And some of the things that are called pseudosciences today will end up being sciences. <laughs> well, for example, um, electoral polling. Yeah, that is a good example. Yeah, that one, that one has a way to go. Um, well, let's talk about something a little bit more controversial, and, and that is COVID. You mentioned it earlier, um, and I'll put my cards on the table. I've been vaccinated, my kids have been vaccinated, and I tell everyone I know to get vaccinated. So I, 
I, I looked into it and I acted. I think I was correct. And I think I acted morally. But I know some really smart people who don't want to get the jab. And they are not congenitally stubborn. And they, uh, they know all about confirmation bias and base rates and things like this. And they have reasons for not wanting to get the jab. And I'll just present three to you. I mean, I don't want to get into the specifics of the case, but you know, one thing they'll say is the mRNA vaccines are new and they really shouldn't, and untested. A decade ago, there were experts who were saying that they didn't really know if they were safe or not. That's one. Uh, vaccines were released under emergency use authorizations, so they didn't go through the multi-year process of testing that we normally do for these vaccines. Um, and then they say that the vaccines have side effects, and we're only learning about that now because we didn't do these processes. Um, so I didn't find any of these arguments convincing, so I acted. But, but what would you say about that particular issue? And then more generally, when is it okay to be stubborn? So I would add yet another um, reason that so if, uh, there, I think African-Americans have very good reasons to be suspicious of the vaccine, given the history of the U.S. government's treatment of African-Americans. Yeah, sure, vaccines. the Tuskegee uh, yeah, yeah, experiment. Yeah. Tuskegee experiments. Uh, these are all not unreasonable reasons. Yeah. And if there weren't absolutely compelling medical evidence produced by experts who have engaged in deep research on these matters, that vaccines will not only save your life, but will save the lives of the people around you, the people you love. Um, so just because there may be some reasonable reasons that you like the ones you cite um they i mean that's what being rational is you weigh the reasons on one side or the other and in this case the reasons in favor of getting vaccinated and the reasons pointing in favor of the reliability and safety of these vaccines and the importance for our survival of getting vaccinated are so overwhelming that they easily trump those concerns well, apparently it's not that easy because these very smart people that I know are not. Well, by easy, I yeah. mean <laughs> epistemically easy. Yeah. Um, I didn't mean psychologically easy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, these people are just being epistemically stubborn. Mm -hmm. um, and um, perhaps there's something else going on there because either they're not paying attention or they're paying attention but refusing to accept mm -hmm. beliefs that they should accept. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there's, there's really... Uh, they're morally culpable. Um, and if their refusal to get vaccination, vaccinated either causes the death of uh, someone they love or even of strangers, they're morally culpable for those deaths. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll uh, you know, the truth will out. Yeah. In 10 years, we'll know whether we did the right things or not. Right. Because it's not 100% clear what the effects of, <laughs> of this, what is really an experiment. Um, right, but mass vaccination. Yeah, but the track record of vaccines has been pretty it's damn been good. good. Yeah, that's what convinced me. But we'll know in ten years uh, right. whether their stubbornness was of the good kind or of the bad kind. Do you think it's kind of you know I, um, I'm a little worried about stigmatizing these people by calling them stubborn or something like this. Is that a concern of yours? Or? It is. Um, you know, one concern is that the people who most need to read this book are not going to read it. <laughs> But, you know, we can hope that every, all of us know people who are engaged in bad thinking. And so perhaps this book will allow people to at least start conversations with them. Mm -hmm. um, we did try to avoid as much as possible stigmatizing people, engaging in name calling. That's why we avoided the word stupid. Yeah. Um, 
Although I really do think that the, the those who took part in the January sixth assault on on the Congress, there's a there's a deep stupidity there. Uh, but you know, we wanted to encourage people to reflect on why and how they come to believe things, and to invite people to think about what it means to be a rational agent, to be a moral agent. Um, so you know, stubborn. It's you know there are worse words. That's a good one, you. actually. It's I don't. Not, I I kind of don't mind being called stubborn. I'm like, yeah. that can be a virtue. Before, <laughs> it can be a virtue, and as we said before, a lot of good has come out of stubbornness. Yeah, it really has. But so has a lot of bad. Yeah, no, you that's have to right. Pick, you have to pick your stubbornness. Yeah, I really like. I say when I saw that word in a philosophical text, I was like, yeah, that's really clever. That's it's a clever use of that word. Uh, I don't think you'll find a deep, deep literature on stubbornness, do you? In the philosophical. No, you don't, but there, sh- there should be there more. There should be, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it really isn't a very off-putting word. I, I wouldn't mind being called stubborn. That's okay. I, no, Jane, as I said in the, in the interview I heard, Jane Goodall called herself stubborn, and she was proud of it. Yeah, there you uh, go. I'm right. sure a lot of crusaders for good causes would yeah. be happy to be called stubborn. Yeah. So you close the book uh, with the word wisdom. What is Wisdom. Wisdom is essentially having a proper assessment of your own state of knowing. It's being honest with yourself and with others about what you do know and what you don't know, and being sufficiently humble so that when you realize what you don't know, you're willing to both tailor your beliefs, revise your beliefs, thinking, you know, realizing that you don't really know what you thought you know, knew, um, and so revising your beliefs there, and then taking the steps to both um, fill in the holes of your ignorance mm-hmm. and come to know the things that it would benefit you and others for you to know. That's what, I, that's what wisdom is. And in a way, that's, what so- that's how Socrates conceived of wisdom many years ago. Many mm-hmm. years ago, many uh, yeah, centuries many ago, yeah. millennia ago. Two millennia, yeah, two or three millennia ago. Um, just to give the listeners to this podcast a peek of what is to come on the New Books Network, we're going to start a podcast called probably How to Be Wrong, and we're going to interview scholars, probably of a certain age, of a certain tenure status, mm-hmm. who will cop to have been, have been wrong about something. Um, and they will talk about the, why they were wrong and how they dealt with being wrong and how they tried how did, to correct. How did they discover they were wrong? Yeah, how did they discover they were wrong? There are lots of questions here because I know at least in my scholarly career, I, can, I have one really big blooper. I won't tell you what it is, but it was it was wrong with a capital W. Um, well, you can't go through life without being wrong. When I, you know, at at the certain age, what you do a lot is think back and reflect on all the mistakes you made as a as the son or daughter of somebody, or as the parent of others, or as friends and lovers. Um, that's how we learn, isn't it? It's funny you mentioned that because I was just, for reasons unknown to me, my mind reminded me that when my mom would write me in college and graduate school, I never wrote back. <laughs> yep. Yep. I, that was uh, wrong. All things we could take back. That was wrong. Um, well, anyway, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, and we have a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is what are you working on now? I'm just finishing up a book on Descartes, a kind of biography uh, and introduction to the general lay reader about who Descartes was and why he was important and what he had to say. Oh, well, that's great. Um, when you finish the book, which I suspect won't be next week, uh, (laughs) knowing how these things are written, do contact us and we'll have you on again. That would be great. Thanks very much. Okay, great. Well, let me tell all the listeners 
that we have been talking to Steve Nadler, who, with Lawrence Shapiro, has co-authored the book, When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People, How Philosophy Can Save Us from Ourselves. It's out from Princeton University Press. Steve, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Absolutely.